Matthew chapter 9. I had a friend once. I would say he's still my friend. We keep in touch a little bit here and there. <laughs> but he was a, a man that I was mentoring when, I was, when we were living up in Illinois. He was a man that, if I were to introduce you to him or to some assemblies, there might be some division about this man. He's a homosexual. He's a drug addict. He's been abused from the time he was six. In any way you can imagine. He has addictions that I won't even name here from the pulpit. But this man had been saved by the grace of God. Repented of his sins. Seeking help. To be discipled. To walk in the ways of Christ. Many tears he has shed over his sins. And if I were to bring him to, to certain assemblies, just the word homosexual. Nope, he can't be in here. He's not allowed in this assembly. I can't have a relationship with that person. This man is probably one of the most sincere Christians I've ever met. Used mightily by God. His testimony has profoundly made an impact on many not ashamed of his past though he has had many times when we were when we were when I was mentoring him we had many conversations where he would be struggling because so and so such and such made comments about him he was a little bit feminine in his speech and he was rejected because of who he was by many people He's a shame. His past is a shame. Do you believe that a man like that could be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that a man like that could be part of an assembly to be united with the body of Christ? In the song that we sang at the cross, the first two lines go like this, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such, for sinners such as I? The original words there, for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done, he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. When was the last time you thought of yourself a criminal because of your sins? Have you ever thought, I'm a criminal? Because I've broken God's law. I am pitiful. Amazing pity. For God to have pity upon us means we're pitiful. Have you thought about yourselves as being pitiful? In need of somebody else's pity? That's not something comforting. You know, if somebody, you know, many of us perhaps have had experiences in the past when somebody tried, we were in a certain situation, a hardship, and somebody tried to give us something to help, and we say, I don't want your pity. I don't want your charity, because we're too proud to admit that we're in a pitiful state, that we need help. Grace unknown. We think we know grace. Grace unknown. How can we measure God's grace? How can we really say we understand the depths of it and love beyond degree? Can't measure God's love and grace. 
we can understand the it conceptually to a degree, and we can grow throughout our life in understanding the grace and the love of God that He has given to us. But there will never be a time in our life where we fully comprehend it. It is beyond us, and therefore we should always be reaching for it. And in Matthew chapter 9, and throughout the course of this message, we're going to be introduced to somebody that many people thought was a shameful person. Why in the world would, G would Rabbi Jesus choose this man to be his disciple, to be part of his inner twelve? Why in the world would this man be chosen rather than some other man? Let's start in verse 9. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, okay, he had just healed a paralytic man who was dropped down through the rafters in the ceiling, and he forgave this man's sins, causing great dispute among the people, because only God can forgive sins. Who is Jesus to forgive this man's sins? It says, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And some of your translations would add to repentance. Let us pray. Lord, we seek you. And Lord, I just pray that there would be a great flame of humility in this room to see you as God, to see you as the forgiver, the redeemer, the great reconciler, the one who shall one day bring all nations together before you, to worship you, before you all every name, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And Lord, I pray that we would start that confession now. And that we, not, we might not be surprised when we stand before you. We may not be surprised by confession, but that we would be living a lifestyle of kneeling living a lifestyle of worship so that it is not something that is unfamiliar when we, are, when we approach you. And Lord, let us not uplift ourselves against other sinners, for we too have committed crimes. For we too are sinners. We too will stand in desperate need of your grace and your mercy. I pray that none of us would ever think that we are beyond need. That we are beyond the need for you to pity us. And thereby give us your great grace and your mercy. In Jesus name, amen. So here we see a story about Matthew. We're actually reading the book of Matthew. There's some dis dispute about who wrote the book of Matthew, but... I think that it's safe to say that Matthew wrote the book of Matthew, uh, the disciple of Jesus Christ. And he's writing a first-hand account of, of his calling of Jesus Christ. And we want to take a few minutes here just to see some, some of the humility of Matthew when he was writing this. And Matthew is also known 
in Mark and Luke by a different name. You know what that name is? Matthew, also known as Levi. And that's how he's introduced in the books of Mark and Luke, as Levi. And it's not exactly stated. I mean, most of the time in the scriptures when somebody is given an alternate name or a surname, usually there's some sort of reason given as to why or some sort of event. Um, like for Paul, we see his name changed from Saul. and There's a story behind that. For Peter, his name was changed from Simon by Jesus. And there's a story around that. Um, and others in scriptures received new names. And there's stories usually given around why they're given a new name. But Matthew, there's not really a story as to far as why he's given a new name. Which makes it a little bit unique and a little bit confusing at times. Because we don't even really know which is his first name and which is his second name. Is his name really Matthew or is his name really Levi? And which is his surname? Which is the one that he got from Jesus, perhaps? We don't really know exactly how, how the story unfolds. You know, but just, just to give a theory, Matthew means a gift from the Lord. Whereas Levi doesn't have as much of a significant meaning as much as it is symbolic of the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. To name your child Levi would to be associate yourself with the ministry of God. Matthew, meaning a gift from the Lord, perhaps is a name that is more likely to be given to a child from their parents. This is a gift from the Lord. Thank you, God, for this child. Whereas Levi would be more symbolic. So in my opinion, Levi was a surname given later in life, perhaps by Jesus. Matthew being his original name given to him by his parents. Matthew was most likely a Galilean and probably not a Levite. So a name like this given to a Galilean um, from Christ would have been more appropriate as symbolic. And Matthew, in this book of Matthew, Matthew is the only one who actually introduces himself as Matthew. Mark and Luke introduce Matthew as Levi. Now, if you're, you know, you've gone through, I mean, these books were written after Christ died, years after Christ died. They've been, these, by the time these books have been written, the disciples of the apostles by that point have been working together. Or, or Luke wasn't really an apostle, but he was a, a recorder of events and histories of the Christian church. They would have been working together. They've been influenced by years of, of theology and just the ministry of these men. The, it, would, it would be more likely that Mark and Luke would have just been more familiar with calling Matthew Levi for years, for decades even. Just calling him Levi. So when they're recording his story, they refer to him as Levi. Because that's what they're used to. And that's what, he, that's what his name was now. Whereas Matthew, as he records his story, he's just thinking back to the original. He's thinking back to when he was called. His name was Matthew. And Jesus came to humble, shameful Matthew and called him from his tax booth. And we see some humility as he is, in a sense, reminiscing as he's writing his story about this, this blessed time of calling to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we'll move on from talking about Matthew, but we can see even in verse, in verse 10, it says, and as Jesus reclined at, at, at table in the house. Most manuscripts say in the house in the book of Matthew. But if you read the, the records of Mark and Luke, they make it more specific as we, as we can see. It was his house, Matthew's house. 
the son of uh, the house of Matthew. Matthew isn't saying that Jesus came to his house. He just says at the house. Not trying to point any attention at himself, not trying to receive any honor that Jesus was visiting him in his house. The focus that Matthew had was on Jesus, the caller. Whereas Mark and Luke weren't really thinking about that. They're just recording the story. They, he, Jesus went to Matthew's house, reclined at a table, and they were, he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. We see the humility of Matthew as he's pointing us and in in reminiscing and writing down his story. He just wants us to see Jesus. He just wants to focus on Jesus the caller, the one who calls people of every walk of life. And Jesus, just moments before this story, he revealed himself to the community as either a blasphemer or God. When he forgave the paralytic sins, people started disputing amongst, them, amongst themselves. And he's saying, this man is blaspheming because they knew that only God could forgive a man's sins. Who is Jesus to say such a thing? And then Jesus shows a proof that God was with him by healing the man, saying, rise up and walk, substantiating this story, his power, his authority over the sins of mankind, giving a foretaste of what's coming and, and forgiving the sins of multitudes, not just a couple people here and there. So he's revealed himself as either a blasphemer or God when he both healed the paralytic and forgave his sins. Up to this point, he has been revealing through the various stories his authority over all things, the body of a person, the spiritual realm of demons, um, nature as he calmed the storm, and over a person's sins and their position before God, that Jesus has authority over all of these things. We've seen his authority being shown for, for, um, for many weeks, going through these stories, these records of Jesus' actions. And in today's passage, we kind of see the heart of Jesus' mission and his purpose here on earth. And this vision revolves around the calling of Matthew, the tax collector. Jesus calls Matthew to be his disciple. In the middle of Matthew carrying out his shame. He was a tax collector. He was hated by the Jews. He was despised by his own people. It was a shame for a Jew to be a Roman official, a Roman employee, somebody not just working in the government house, but sitting in the booth telling Jews what they owe the Roman government. Every Jew that approached that table looked down on Matthew. Every single time a Jew came to the tax table and they looked at Matthew, they looked at him with eyes of shame, eyes of rejection. How could you? How could you be doing this to us? I can, they can understand a Roman taking taxes for the Romans, but a Jew? That's unacceptable. That's unfathomable. And Matthew was reminded of his shame every time a Jew came up and put their taxes in his hand. The people, person by person by person, rejection, Rejection, rejection. Jesus comes up to him. Perhaps Jesus is paying his taxes. Who knows? But Jesus sees Matthew 
at the table. He approaches Matthew, and Matthew sees him. Perhaps he recognizes him, because by now Jesus has been doing lots of things that have made him really popular. He has set up shop in Capernaum, whereas, where he probably still is in Capernaum. And he approaches Matthew at his tax table, and Matthew thinks, maybe he recognizes him, maybe he thinks, wow, this is the man everybody's been talking about, and thinks nothing more of it. Probably just coming to pay his taxes. But then Jesus says two little words that change Matthew's life forever. Jesus doesn't come on come to him with eyes of shame, looking down upon this man. He doesn't come with rebuke. I mean, this man is starting to be seen as a prophet, a man of God, a rabbi. Perhaps he's expecting Jesus to come and preach a sermon at him as, as to why he shouldn't be doing what he's doing. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says two little words. Two little words. Follow me. Follow me. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't preach at him. He doesn't hold his hands and pray that his sins would be forgiven. He doesn't point out any of that. He says, follow me. And what was Matthew's reaction He rose and followed him. Two little words. Matthew obeyed. Perhaps he was primed and ready because of all the shame he felt on a daily basis from the people. He wanted a way out. He just couldn't find a way out. You know, in the, in the I can't remember word for word because I just, when, when Rich was reading the Proverbs today in Sunday school, one of the Proverbs said something to the effect, um, the depressed, you know, person is, a person is suppressed by anxiety or something, but the words, but good words are healing. I can't remember the exact, the exact verse. Um, but, but anyway, a person who is filled with shame, when he receives good words from somebody, they're healing to his soul. And perhaps these, this is just the opportunity, perhaps it was just the priming that Matthew was, was receiving. He's accepting me. The Messiah or at least this rabbi, he is accepting me. He knows his shame. He knows he doesn't deserve to be accepted by this man of God. But this man of God accepts him and calls him to be his disciple. Is that how we feel sometimes? I want to follow Jesus because I know who I am and I know that I am the last person that deserves to be called by Jesus, but Jesus calls me. Have you ever known somebody who got saved and you just thought, man, that's the last person I ever thought would get saved? But they did. Why? Because Jesus said, follow me, and the Spirit awoke their heart to follow Jesus. And they followed. Simple. Simple as that. Faith is very simple at its core. Sometimes we overcomplicate things. We need this to change and that to change and we have to lay these foundations and say these truths and put all these words in this order. But all Jesus said was follow me. And it changed Matthew's life forever. Well, let's keep going on. And he says in verse 10, And Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus 
and his disciples. So Jesus is being rather unorthodox in this story. Rabbis did not eat with tax collectors and sinners. It's just not what happened. Jesus is further showing his unorthodox nature. And remember that Jesus is God. God does not operate according to human expectations or propriety. We set up systems of what's proper and what's acceptable and what works and what doesn't work and what's desirable and what's beautiful and what needs to happen. God doesn't care about any of that. God will always do the unexpected. That's why we must be open to him. Open, not bound by our ways, by our traditions. Not that traditions are bad. Not that routines are bad. Not that systems are bad. But we must not be bound by them. Because Jesus often tries our faith by abolishing them and leading us out of them. To show us where our, where our devotion lies. Does it lie on the ways of men? Or simply in faith in God? Jesus is being unorthodox in that Matthew, perhaps this is a celebration, and Matthew is inviting Jesus to his house. He's inviting all of his friends and co-workers. Look, this rabbi is different. He associates with people like me. Can you believe it? Friends, family, come over. Let's see this man who has called me to be his disciple. Nobody else wants anything to do with me, but this man of God does want something to do with me. Come and see. <laughs> what kind of people do we not want anything to do with? If we, somebody in this church, were to convert a prostitute and she got saved, and the next Sunday she comes to church with her whole brothel, of course she hasn't had time to go get decent clothes or or anything like that, and all these people are filling our pews, how would you feel about that? Our church is being overrun by a brothel of women and perhaps men who want to come and hear the word of God because this woman, she's been gloriously saved and she's told all of her friends and co-workers, come listen about a man named Jesus who can forgive people like us. Ah, that's true. But how would we feel? With these people filling our pews, would we be rejoicing in the great forgiveness of Christ that extends to every single corner of the world, into every brothel, into every household? Or would we feel a little awkward? Oh, they're not, they don't dress decently. Do you know what these people have done? Do you know what the lifestyle that these people live? Do you know what their problems are? Maybe they should have like maybe we should have a Bible study on Tuesdays so that they could go to that but not come on Sunday. That'll ruin our testimony in the community. We'll be a church of prostitutes. What better testimony can a church have than a testimony that glorifies Jesus Christ, the forgiver of all sins? If people don't like that, so be it, because Jesus has been magnified. The true Jesus is seen. If people don't like the true Jesus, then they were never going to have a part of him anyway. They were going to have a part of the Jesus perhaps that they imagined, but not the real one. 
Not the real Jesus who saves to the utmost. And the other problem is we think that the utmost is not us. That we're not criminals in need of punishment. And that Jesus came to the utmost. He came into, when Jesus went to the utmost, he came into my house to save me. Jesus does what people think is inappropriate. Here, he is eating with tax collectors and with sinners. Now, this is interesting. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter five, verses nine through thirteen. Paul is writing to the Corinthians saying, Let me give you a second here. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy. And the swindlers of the idolaters, since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So how is it that Jesus gets off eating with these tax collectors and sinners and calling Matthew to be part of his inner twelve? Because Matthew did not suppose himself to be worthy of Christ's affection and attention. Matthew was an outsider. His friends and his co-workers were outsiders. And remember, as scripture says, Jesus was crucified outside the camp, hung on the tree, cursed. Why? Because he reaches to those who are outside and brings them in. Paul's instruction are about those who consider themselves to be insiders. They consider themselves to be part of Christ's body. But yet, they act like an outsider. That's what you call a hypocrite. That's why Paul says, what do I have anything? I don't have anything to do with judging people who are outside the body of Christ. Those are gods, and he will bring his chosen ones in. You and I cannot abide with those who say they're insiders, who try to claim they presume upon the love of God, live as they please. While all the while thinking, yeah, I'm one with this. I'm part of the body of Christ. All is well. No, Matthew didn't suppose himself to be worthy of Christ's affection, but some of us, we think we're worthy of it. And we use, we presume upon the grace of God, and we say, well, I, God's just going to forgive me anyway, so I'll just do whatever I want and ask for forgiveness. Those are the people who don't belong to the church of God. Matthew knew his shame. He was not even trying to chase after Jesus, trying to get Jesus' attention. He was sitting in his shame. In Matthew 8, we 
In Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, we kind of see a little bit of this in action. He says, When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up to him saying, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So we have somebody chasing after Jesus saying, Teacher, I'm gonna, I want to come with you. And that's what we all want to hear. I want to I I follow. I want to come with you. I want to walk with you on this journey for God. And Jesus says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He rejected the man who was coming after him. But then he said in verse 21, another of, his, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first and go bury my father. So he's trying to delay. He's trying to hold back. He's kind of perhaps captivated by his life. But Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus is calling somebody who is not chasing after him and rejecting somebody who is chasing after him. We cannot ever think that we are good enough to follow after Jesus. I mean, that's, I mean that, if you want to boil things down, I mean, that was the Pharisees' problem. They were good enough. They had God's favor. And go back to chap Matthew chapter 9. Verses 10 through 11, we see the carnal thoughts of the Pharisees. And it says, <clears throat> so he was reclining with the tax collectors and sinners in verse 11 in Matthew chapter 9. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to, this, to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Look at Luke chapter 7. In Luke, Luke chapter 7, we see this heart unfolded, this heart of the Pharisees. In Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, I'm just going to read through these relatively quickly here. It says, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had, invi the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Uh-oh. <laughs> and he said, and he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one I suppose of whom he canceled the larger debt. And he, answered, he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. 
You must see, and this goes in conjunction with what I preached last week, true faith, sorrow for sin, repentance, and conversion always come with humble works. Not that those humble works save you, but Jesus sees what's beneath it. He sees the faith that is initiating all of it. And by faith, by his grace, I mean, this woman did not deserve to be saved. This woman didn't even ask for forgiveness. And Jesus turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven you. Why? Because he saw the faith. He didn't hear prayer. He saw the faith. She didn't even feel worthy to speak a prayer. And we remember, I'm not going to turn there, we remember the prayer of the Pharisee versus the prayer of the sinner. God, thank you that I am not like other people. (laughs) Sinners, or this man, and this other man over here prays, beating his chest in sorrow. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who are you? Have you ever grieved over sin? Has it ever brought trembling and the beating of your chest in pain? The pain of sorrow, tears of grief. Because if you truly see the kind of person that you are, As God sees, who divides a person, sees all the corners, nothing is hidden before him. When you see a glimpse of that, see a glimpse of what God sees, you see that within me there dwells no good thing. When was the last time we saw that there was no good thing in here? Everything that is good is from God. And the spirit that he has sent to dwell within us, the Christ who is in me, and I in him, all by grace, through faith. When was the last time you just saw a glimpse of the reality of grace? Because grace is not grace unless there is the grief of sin. If there is no grief for sin, I mean, you can listen to any sermon by Charles Spurgeon, and he probably talks about that at some point. Without the grief of sin, there is no true conversion. And just to, I don't have time to keep going on, going on much longer. But I just, we have to finish this passage. Matthew chapter 9. Let's go back here. In verse 12, Jesus rebukes them. Matthew chapter 9, verse 12. But when he heard it, when Jesus, okay, so they weren't talking to Jesus. They were kind of, you know, we talked about in Sunday school about whispering. <laughs> they were talking with his disciples trying not to be heard by Jesus. Why is, your, why is Jesus eating with these kind of people? That's not common. That's unorthodox. But Jesus heard it. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And this just goes along with what we're talking about. Do you know your disease? Do we recognize how sick we are and how needy we are of a physician? And you know, and I have to say this, most people, and I've talked to many people, even just, even just around here, one of the hardest, 
one of the biggest strongholds is everybody values the doing, the work, the accomplishment, the doing good for people, being a good neighbor. But Jesus says, only those who are sick get the physician. Do we know how sick we are? We try to cover up our sickness by the doing of good. We put the ointment, you know, we put the, we, we may have melanoma, but we just kind of take care of it with some, you know, with some uh, lotion or whatever. We try to cover it up with the good. And Jesus goes further and he says, go and learn what this means. He's telling us, go and think about this. Go study this out because this is a deep thought. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We think that if we sacrifice enough, we can cover the emptiness of the human condition. We can kind of add value to the human condition by doing good. But what here Jesus is quoting Hosea chapter 6. And you don't have to turn there, but Hosea chapter 6 says, I desire mercy or loving kindness is the word, the word here for uh, mercy that Jesus uses or loving kindness as it's translated in the Old Testament is hesed. Hesed can be translated in dozens of different ways. But deep, when you boil it all down, it's talking about covenant love. It's about committed, faithful, steadfast love that is not swayed or bound by the actions of another person. It's the kind of love that God has for you and me. The only love that, the only kind of love that results in infinite, unending love amidst a people who fail him over and over and over and over and over again. It's the kind of love that grows within a marriage where we see, as we, as a married person, they're together and they see all the faults along with all the things that we love about that person, but all those faults, but yet that Hesed love, that covenant love doesn't say, well, you have an ugly thing, so I'm going to reject you now. And in the New Testament, it's regarded as mercy. A mercy that said that if you know what the mercy of God is, if you've experienced the mercy of God, you know that when you receive God's mercy, it is something that He is giving you even though everything about you repels it, naturally speaking. I am a wicked sinner. I am full of shame. I deserve to be in your, your prison. I deserve to be in your hell. But instead you give me life and love. And Jesus is saying, I desire mercy. And he goes on in the second part of that verse that he's not quoting, helps us unfold this and knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Knowing God is the best thing a person can ever do in their life. Because they can offer the offering, but that doesn't add anything to themselves. They can do the good, and that doesn't add anything to themselves. The best thing we can ever know in this life is God. The best thing we can ever do in this life is go know God. And that's why 
The apostles in Acts chapter 6 verse 2 could prioritize the word in prayer above acts of service. I mean, look at this, if you want. I'm just going to dive in here. Acts chapter 6 verse 2 says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That sounds so insensitive, doesn't it? What, you don't want to serve the widows? These widows need our help. Well, you're so high and mighty that you can't serve the tables. But they're following, essentially, the mindset of Hosea chapter 6, Hosea 6.6. 6. Knowledge of God is better than burnt offerings. The, the apostles knew first things. They knew what must be in order for anything else to matter. The knowledge of God. We prioritize the doing of good as human beings. That's what we want. We want to do good. We want to make a difference. We want to be an asset. But Hosea is saying the best thing that you can do is know God. And that's why the apostles are saying we can't give up the preaching of the word and prayer to serve tables because we know these people, this congregation... These new believers, they need to know God. That's the first thing they need. Yeah, we can take care of that need. So let's call seven, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The story goes on and on. They didn't, they didn't refuse the need. They provided for it, but they knew what their position was. To help these people know God, because that is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifice. What, knowing what God has done, who he is, is far greater than anything that we could ever do for somebody else. And we can talk about the other side, and we have talked about the other side, of the importance of being and doing and, give and serving. But today we're talking about first things. We would rather do something for somebody else than to read a book, <laughs> right? And in many cases it's probably a good idea to go and do something rather than read a book, because sometimes when we read books it's just, you know, it's not really in pursuit of knowing God. It's just kind of, well, it's kind of good to read this book and learn some things. But the outlook of our life, whether we're learning, whether we're communing with God in the Spirit, or whether we're going out and doing, it's all in pursuit of God. His kingdom. His righteousness. It's not just about doing good. It's not just about growing a church. It's not just about any of this. It's about knowing God and helping other people to know God. That's what we want because in him is life. And I just want to end. Go back to Matthew chapter 9. And let's just look at this again. Before we end. Bear with me for a few more minutes. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. And not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus didn't come to call all the people who were doing good, trying to make something of themselves. And if you read my article in the paper, I talked about Eve. What was really the root of why she ate that fruit? I mean, it looked desirable even before Satan came and tempted her. But she didn't eat it then, just because it looked nice and it looked delicious. 
She was deceived into thinking that eating that fruit was going to make something of her. It was going to change her into something better. Make her like God, in a sense. I mean, that's, the found, that's really what convinced her and really opened her eyes to see how delightful and delicious that fruit looked. Not just because of the fruit itself, but because of what she thought it would do for her. To make her better, to build her up. God is not looking for people who are looking to just build themselves up, to make something of themselves by the doing of good, by the participating in good. He is looking for people who simply want to put their faith in Jesus, making much of him and his work. Lest the cross of Christ be made of none effect. I came not to call the righteous, those who are trying to make something of themselves in the eyes of God, but sinners. People who know that there's nothing in them that deserves the, the gaze of God. That's who God goes to. Remember the parable where the king held a feast. All of the king's friends, talking about Israel, rejected his invitation for the feast. So Jesus sent his servants out to the people in the highways and the byways. People who knew that they had no rights to enter the, enter the palace to be part of this buffet. Those are the people he went to. Because he was rejected by his own friends. They were too busy. They had things going on that they were involved in. These other people were invited and brought in who had no rights to be there. The king's friends had rights to be there, so to speak. These other people, they had no rights to be there, but those are the ones who came and were invited and were given clean clothes. And we are only given robes of white when we stop trying to scrub out our own filth, thinking it's going to do any good. Jesus gives us our white robes then when we put our faith wholly and completely in him, in his sacrifice. So my plea today is, how do you think of yourself? How do you think of the things that you're doing? And what do you think of Jesus? What do you think about what he did? What do you think about others in this community? What they're doing? How they deserve to be treated? A lot of it just comes, like I said, comes down to the knowing, to the understanding, to the thinking. How do we view things? That reveals what's really in our hearts. To go beyond the doctrine, yeah, I believe the doctrine and the creeds and the confession, but what do I really feel about this? What's really on the inside? It's very penetrating. Now, the heart can be deceitful, and we must prayerfully consider these things. And I would ask you, pray about these things this week. Seek the Lord truly. Seek to know Him. And let's just take a week Stop valuing ourselves. I mean, that's really what Sabbath was all about. To stop valuing the works of your hands and trusting in God to provide. And in the New Testament, we see that Christ is our Sabbath. The one who gives us the ability to stop thinking about what I need to do, what I need to produce, and simply let him produce it for me. That's the spirit of Sabbath.
Let us have the spirit of Sabbath to rest from our works, to enter into God's rest. To stop judging other people by their works. Because the very judgments that we make toward another as being evil is what makes that person desirable to God. And let us not stand in opposition to his unorthodox ways. Lord, I thank you for being unorthodox in my life and calling me a sinner. You know all my problems. And you are faithful to me. Lord, may we have more weeping in our lives. Even at the expense of doing. Let us know your goodness. Let us see it. Reveal it to us. And let Matthew be a testimony to us. And this woman... Let us rejoice in your ways and not ours. In Jesus' name, amen.